house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast passing off a Michael Bublé standard as period appropriate. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my doppelganger neighbor, who's also my nanny, Joe Reed. Get away from my baby. What? I feel like that was Rebecca Ferguson's accent just kept going in and out and in and out. And I feel like at some point she just like fully stopped. No, Emily Blunt's accent is real. Rebecca Ferguson is trying to do some sort of weird halfway between American and not accent. We're going to talk about the weird like dichotomy of British and American dialects in this British novel set in America. Oh, we'll get into it. Set. We'll totally get into it, but I do feel like I need to plant my flag down in saying that we have a lot of uh, performers from the UK that do amazing American accents, whether or not, like, whatever. I just think there are certain performers that, like, they should always just have a British dialect, and I think Rebecca Ferguson is one of them. Well, she's Swedish, though, is the weird thing. Wait a minute. She's not a Brit? Well, she was born in Sweden. I don't know whether she was like, hold on a second. Let's go to let's go to the videotape. As all right. we all learned from the girl with the dragon tattoo, Swedish dialects are essentially just British American. Rebecca Ferguson dialects. was born in Stockholm, Sweden, and grew up in Stockholm, Sweden. Her father is Swedish. Her mother is British of Scottish and Northern Irish descent and moved to Sweden at the age of 25. Rebecca attended an English-speaking school in Sweden and was raised bilingual, speaking Swedish and English. But she was in Stockholm until, like, 99 when she graduated school. But I will say, her accent in this movie slips as the movie goes along. Like, it's... it's, um, like you notice the point that Rebecca Ferguson is like, oh fuck. Remember how in Steve Jobs, how the earlier parts of the movie, Kate Winslet's accent is is less severe than in the later parts of the movie, which like runs counter to what you would imagine that this woman, the longer she stayed in America, her accent would have gotten less and less whatever. And like her Polish. English less stunted, where it's like the thing that I am thinking oh. is the part where you like Right, right. Remember because it's that big her big clip scene isn't till the final the when you are third scene. When she goes, To me it is to me you are the worst. Like that thing. Fix it. Um, <laughs> fix it or I quit. She's been acting weird for months. She's turned on me. 
Fix it. What the? Fix it, Steve. Take it easy. Fix it, or I quit. How about that? I quit, and you never see me again. How about that? Tell me what's wrong with you this morning. What's been wrong with me for 19 years? I've been a witness, and I tell you, I've been complicit. I love you, Steve. You know how much. I love that you don't care how much money a person makes. You care what they make. But what you make isn't supposed to be the best part of you. When you're a father, that's what's supposed to be the best part of you. And it's caused me two decades of agony, Steve, that it is for you. The worst. Fix it, fix it, fix it, Steve. First of all, Kate Winslet's phenomenal in that movie. She was my choice for Best yes, Supporting Actress is. that year. But I all I'm saying is, like, that accent gets heavier and heavier as the movie goes along. Rebecca Ferguson and Girl on the Train, her English is good in the beginning, and it really, when it gets to, like, the scenes of big tension towards the end, when, like, the mask is off of Justin Thoreau, and we're just sort of, you know, we're in Endgame, and it starts slipping in a way that I, like, had I not already read the book, I might have started to suspect that she was some sort of, like, that all of a sudden we're in Mission Impossible 7, and she's just like, gotcha, bitch, like, I'm a secret agent spy. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Something was going on there. Anyway, I find her lovely normally. I find her really bad in this movie. You know why? Because pretty much everyone's bad in this movie. I think some people are better than others. I think some people some people are better than others, especially when it's like they don't need to be good. Like, there's no purpose. Like, we'll get into it. Um, uh, Obviously, if you haven't guessed it from all of the train talk and all the dialect talk, we are here to talk about the girl on the train. Sure are. 2016's thriller novel adaptation that's also kind of like a sex thriller. It's directed by Tate Taylor. It's who's Goner Girl. Goner Girl, yeah. Um, gone Girl on a Train. Even more Good gone. God Girl, get out. Good God um, Girl, get off that train. <laughs> Good God Girl, get some help. Um, <laughs> uh, off that train. Yeah. Um, it was also adapted by Aaron Cressida Wilson. Um, the novel is by Paula Hawkins. Like, this is the book that, like, fully fundamentally just wouldn't leave Target for, like, three years. Oh, it sold so many copies. It was amazing. I Like, sometimes these books, I am genuinely curious, like, how many of these books were just sold because they were on an end cap at Target? Very fair. Also, um, these things have, also, like, a snowball like... effect where, like, all of a sudden your neighbor is reading it. So now you have to be reading it. And then all of a sudden your friend's book club is reading it. So you have to be like, there's, it's just, it's snowballs. And like, you can sell half of your copy simply by the title, like the girl on the train. It could mean anything. It creates an image. It's enigmatic, but then it, it's like, it promises the both. content almost doesn't matter. It promises both thrills, but also that it's not going to be too challenging. Cause it's just like, Oh, it sounds Hitchcockian, but also it's a girl. It's fine. It's just, you know, yeah. it's just a girl. It could just as easily be about a Michelle Branch song as it is about, like, True. gaslighting and murder. We'll get into it. Anyway. Were um, it a Meredith movie... Brooks movie, it would be called The Bitch on the Train, and it would be about how you have to reclaim that word as empowering. 
If it was a Vanessa Carlton movie, the train ride would be a thousand miles. And there'd be a piano strapped to the back of it. <laughs> it's just Michelle Branch is the train conductor. And it's like the front of the train is just the piano and it's trailing behind her. And the faster she plays her keys, the faster that um, goes on the train, the, the faster the train goes, basically. If it were a Paula Cole uh, movie, it would be about a girl on the train who goes through many generations of uh, women throughout her lineage who were in war and such, but they come out on the other side. And you know what? That train, if it was a Fiona Apple movie, <laughs> would be an extraordinary machine. It's done. All right. Anyway. Anyway. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding, I'm trying to push off as much as possible me having to do a 60 second plot description of this because there's a lot fucking going on. There is a lot. Um, you have a lot of actresses in this movie, specifically Emily Blunt, um, wasted off of her ass um, as an alcoholic. There is Rebecca Ferguson, as we've mentioned. Also Haley Bennett, who I think we'll get into. Uh, I have a whole things. lot of stuff about Haley Bennett. Uh, Absolutely. And then randomly, no reason to be there, let alone be like the best people in the movie, Alice and Janney and Lisa Kudrow. Yep. Then you have all of the men in the movie. Laura Prepron's actually pretty good in this movie, too. Is she? Um, I mean, comparatively. <laughs> um, and then right. you have the dudes who are all like one big blur together. Justin Theroux, Edgar Ramirez, and Luke Evans. Girl on the Train, which we'll definitely get into the Gone Girl of it. It opened in the same... Uh, weekend window as Gone Girl did. It opened the first weekend of October in 2016. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they wanted to have. Yeah. Which is weird because Gone Girl, like, completely... Got one nomination? Yeah, it underperformed in almost every way. Not at the box office, though. Like, if they were just chasing the box office of Gone Girl, like, I get it. But, like, this movie in no way measures up to it. We will get into it. Joseph. I know that you have been delaying this. This train has been on a long delay. Your train of the 60-second plot description is basically the MTA. Yeah, it's true. Um, It's taking a long time to get there. Pulling on up to Westchester County. Yeah, okay. Now that it is here, would you like to give our lovely listeners a 60-second plot description of The... The Girl on the Train? Yeah, yes. Yes. We'll see how okay. far I get. We'll see at what point you have to cut me off and how far into the actual story I get. But okay. We famously are a podcast that like we can't even like complete our own game, but whenever we have a guest they're like, "Oh, they kill I did it this in 30 they, seconds." They do it so well. They're so succinct. And uh, we're just like, "Bah, whatever." Right. Maybe we just pick the like really convoluted shit when it's just me and you hanging out. Anyway, anyway, your sexy second plot description, still very delayed, is going to start now. All right, so Emily Blunt plays a woman named Rachel. She's an alcoholic. Every day she rides the train. We think it's to a job, but it's not to a job. It's to go up to Westchester to like creepily stalk her ex, played by Justin Thoreau, and his new wife, uh, played by Rebecca Ferguson, whose name is Anna. He cheated on Rachel with Anna, and now he has a new family, complete with a new baby. One time Rachel went up there and, like, took the baby and walked out into the backyard and got caught and it was really awkward and and ever since then it's been like really bad but also on these train rides she notices a young sexy woman named megan who's always like 
out on her little terrace in her underwear or whatever, like making out with her hot husband played by Luke Evans. And Rachel looks at them and is sort of like longing and reads a lot into them and is sort of attached to them. And then one day Megan turns up dead. And so Rachel gets like very over invested in it. And she goes and she meets up with Scott, who is the husband. And she wants to, because at one point she saw Megan up there with Edgar Ramirez. So she knew she was uh, cheating on her husband and she tries to get the murder to solve and it all. And uh, the police think it's her because she's a drunk who like skulks around there. Oh my God. I knew it. I knew it. I didn't even get to the part where she blacked out on the night of Megan's murder. Okay. Right, right. So she blacks out on the night of Megan's murder, basically. So it's possible that, like, Rachel is one of the people that killed Megan. Right. Rachel is almost, like, the the prime suspect. She's, like, the quintessential unreliable narrator in that, like, she has no idea what happened that night. And also, all she knows is that, like, she's a massive fucking drunk who, like, blacks out and who tried to steal a baby one time. Well, and her perception, because of her marriage and all of the stories that her husband told her that she behave her behavior when she gets blackout drunk is that she becomes aggressive and violent but she becomes aggressive and violent and and uh yes she'll she'll fuck up a party had you read the book i had and i had also hated the book okay so the one major change from the book beyond the fact that it moves from England to the United States is that in the book, Rachel sort of gradually pieces together her own memories on her own. There's a lot of it that's very internal. And she eventually figures out that, oh, no, I didn't do those things. That was Tom, my husband, gaslighting me into thinking that I was doing all those things because he... Like, she was really an alcoholic the whole time, but, like, he, like, right. hated her for that, and he was abusive to her, and he ultimately... Yeah, meanwhile, started... he's, like, beating the shit out of her. And, like, and cheating on her and, and, and doing all sorts of stuff. So, in the book, she kind of, like, comes to that realization piece by piece on her own. In the movie, which is maybe a good idea, like, maybe... or But it's also an idea that doesn't really trust its audience super well. Yeah. Um, they instead insert this character played by Lisa Kudrow, who is the wife of Tom's former boss who Every was movie should insert a character played by Lisa Kudrow. Truly. The one like the one flashback Rachel keeps going back to is this sort of business party at Lisa Kudrow's house where she uh <laughs> Rachel brought a plate of deviled eggs and then was so ill behaved <laughs> that she ended up throwing them against the wall and then they had to leave and it was very embarrassing. And so in the current sto- in the current timeline Rachel sees Lisa Kudrow on the train, uh-huh, on another train, and apologizes. Lisa Kudrow was the girl on the train. Yes. In, in many ways, we're all on that train still. We never got off that train. <laughs> um, apologizes to Lisa Kudrow for her bad behavior years before, and Lisa Kudrow's like, what are you talking about? You got, like, you had a little bit too much to drink, and we let you sleep in our bedroom. And so Lisa Kudrow's like, you, you, you did nothing wrong that night. It's your husband who was a philandering jackass, and we all... You know, we all hated him, and he got fired later for, you know, because he couldn't keep it in his pants, and yada, yada, yada. So re- uh, Lisa Kudrow is, in many ways, like the the unlocking oracle of this yeah. movie. And that was the big change that they made from the, from the book to the movie. I read this book. So famously, I don't know how to read. But, like, every once in a while, I'll read a book. And one summer, I was on vacation with my family on Cape Cod. And I just sort of like loaded up my Kindle with books, and I one one of them was Gone Girl because I think it was like the summer before. No, because it hadn't been cast yet, so I think it was like summer twenty 
13, it must have been. Because I remember reading the book and thinking like, oh, I wonder who I would cast as this and this and this. So, but Gone Girl, I like devoured. I loved it. I just like, I read it in the span of like two days. I was super into it. I was like, this is a huge success. So a couple years later, um, or maybe even just like the next year, I was like, all right, I'm going to do, I'm going on vacation again, going back to Cape Cod. What is my vacation book? And that was the, the vacation that I chose all wrong, where I picked The Girl on the Train because that was like the hot book of that summer. And I picked A Little Life. And so <laughs> and A Little Life I enjoyed, but A Little Life is not a vacation book. It will ruin your time away from home. It like truly... I was just like and yet curled it is up a in a less ball. miserable experience than the girl on the train. Well, the girl on the train, I remember just being like disappointed by. It. And I remember my mom had read it already. And so she saw that I was reading it and I had, I was very sort of early on in it. And my mom just sort of notes that I'm reading it. And she goes, I didn't really like that. I'm like, Oh, huh? And she's just like, I didn't like the main character. I thought she was X, Y, and Z. And I remember thinking like, Oh mom, you're so pedestrian. Like, you know, you can't handle, like, complicated... You just want your characters to be very, like, likable and flat and whatever. And I get it, but, like, I am here for a more complex reading experience. So I will enjoy The Girl on the Train. I didn't and your say mom was th- fully right? Of course she was. Of course she was fully right. I didn't like her. I didn't like this character. It's... It's not... I mean, uh, in the book, she's not well-written. She's not much better developed on in the film either it's really like they make rachel into just like this sad pathetic woman without dimension like i realize that the book is written by a woman the screenplay is adapted by a woman but like there is some like shit that really grinds my gears in this movie that i feel like is really mired in sexism that i don't love I mean, there's in a way that like Gone Girl kind of like, and like it's annoying. Like I got annoyed when this movie came out. It's like of all the Gone Girl comparisons because they are so different. But like, but it if was you're really chasing going Gone for that. Girl. It was really Gone chasing Girl, it. Yeah, well, Gone Girl is like a like upends a lot of those things and yeah. like uses them against the reader and uses our perceptions. Whereas like, exactly. I think the girl on the train reinforces a lot of things that I just can't abide well and the book was even more so where in the book they talk a lot about how rachel hated the way she looked and felt sort of like you know was sort of demeaned by that and it's it's sort of six of six of one half dozen of another where it's like the movie version turns that into emily blunt and it's just like oh right just like every movie the characters in the you know the actors you cast to play the characters in this movie are better looking than they were on the page and whatever but like on the page, there was this this sort of, like, I don't know, this kind of unexamined, sad, you know, sad ladiness, mm-hmm. where it's just like, eh, this feels a little flat and not exploitive, but, like, not not exploitive. I don't know. I just, yeah, like, and this isn't even talking about any of the thriller aspects of it, too. Like, right. there's this whole thread about how... Women are depressed because they can't have babies. Yes, that's the Megan character. Me- the Megan character in this essentially is the Gone Girl character, is the Amazing yeah. Amy, in that like her life is the one that you never expected. Whereas like Rachel is almost the Ben Affleck in this, where she's she only sees 
Well, actually, no. What it is. All right, here's what it is. Ooh. Is Megan Hipwell in Girl on the Train is Amazing Amy. Um, sort of everybody in Megan's life is to some degree Ben Affleck to her. And then Rachel is us reading Gone Girl. It's that, <laughs> it's that thing in... <laughs> It's that thing in 30 Rock where where Jenna Maroney is like to Emily Mortimer. She's just like, well, how sex in the city are we right now? I'm Samantha. You're Charlotte. And you're the lady at home who watches it. Oh, you're Carrie. I'm Samantha. And Liz, you're the woman at home who watches us on TV. Joe, you are giving this way too much credit. No, no, no. I'm not saying this was intentional, but I'm just like, these are like the (laughs) roles. Whereas like Rachel is the person who looks at Megan from afar and is like, oh, I've got her all figured out. And then we find out that, you know, she's nothing like what we thought she was, except in Gone Girl, it's all sort of like confrontational and amazing and and mean and kind of like, I like the way that Gone Girl kind of sneers at its reader a little bit. And it's just yeah. like, you really thought you had this woman sewed up. And... Girl on the Train tries to pull that same kind of thing, except it's a lot more pedestrian. And it's like you said, it all really comes down to borderline offensive. Oh, she had a baby and it drowned in the tub and it was her fault. And she's never been able to forgive herself. And thus she allows these men to sort of, you know, take advantage of her. And she seeks out men to sort of, you know, and Rachel always wanted a baby and couldn't get pregnant with her husband, Tom, right? Like, then has an affair and then his affair Anna gets pregnant and like Anna like here's the thing of the three women like Anna is sometimes the most frustrating in the movie because like Rebecca Ferguson is really just has nothing to do in this movie correct other than like have a braid and a cardigan Mm -hmm. and like Emily Blunt is really hung out to dry even though I think she's like I think she's really she good. I think she's doing a very good job. I think she gives a very good performance in this movie. I think she's could give a better performance if she was like directed in any way that wasn't be pathetic. I really think this movie hangs her out to dry. But Haley Bennett is the one that I think is really good. I have always liked Haley Bennett. And what that mostly means is I saw her in Greg Araki's Kaboom <laughs> and was fucking like bewitched by her i thought she was so entertaining and so sort of charismatic in every moment of that movie and i'm like this girl is going to be a star and then it didn't happen for like several years and i'm like oh i guess it was wrong and then they bring her out in this movie and i think this movie i think for as good as i think i do agree with you that she's good in this movie but i think this movie hangs her out to dry as much as they hang out emily blunt if not more so and also, and this is not her fault, obviously, but, like, she looks so much like Jennifer Lawrence in this movie that it, I think it mm. made, oh, watch it again. Like, there are scenes where I look at her briefly and I'm just like, is that Jennifer Lawrence from, like, Winter's Bone? Like, not, like, sort of David See, O. Russell. said that about Joanna Kulig, too, and I'm like, I don't, I mean, like, I get it, but. Joanna Kulig so. in what? Uh, Cold War. Oh, fucking Cold War. Who cares? Yeah, fuck Cold War. Um, I don't know. I really see it in this. And I think, and I remember a lot of people sort of reacted that way, where it's just like, oh, she's just like, they're trying to make another Jennifer Lawrence happen. And ultimately, this wasn't the movie for her. Also, was she not like a Brie Larson-esque, like, former, like, teen pop 
person or am I thinking of something else? That I do not know. I, I feel like, like this... she was on like a show, right? Well, 2016 was like the year they were trying to make Haley Bennett happen because there was this, there was the Magnificent Seven, which I liked her in, but mostly maybe that was just like, oh, thank God, a woman in that movie. Yeah. Um, and then also Rules Don't Apply, which we will fully talk about Rules Don't Apply one day, and it will yeah. be it will be another traumatic experience watching that movie. Oh, here's why. Okay, she, I, I, I thought that because she was – she played the pop star in music and lyrics. That's why uh, I thought that. Uh, uh, oh. So there was that. Yeah. I like Haley Bennett. I sort of feel like, I do feel like whatever, you know, grand prediction I had for superstardom for her hasn't happened and probably isn't going to happen, but I'm still interested to see what she does. Yeah. I mean like this performance definitely has me intrigued for what she can do because like, I think in a certain way, like, in a way that, like, Rosman Pike in Gone Girl got to play both sides of it. But, like, she's yes. fully just kind of an enigma in this movie or is only yeah. asked to be. Yes. But I think at the same time, what she is doing is interesting to watch. Yeah. And isn't just, like, look at me, like, not revealing anything to you. Like, you can definitely tell that there is, like a person in there. The book takes time to have both Megan and Anna be, I mean, to borrow a term from Game of Thrones fans, like POV characters where like you'll get a chapter narrated by Rachel and then you'll get one that's from Anna's point of view. And then you'll get one from Megan's point of view. And I think for all the faults of the book, it at least sort of gave you this viewpoint of three women got, you got into their heads a little bit. The movie spends a lot of time with Megan, but I don't think it ever really gets into her head. It just, there's a lot of her like sort of unloading things onto Edgar Ramirez's character, who's her psychiatrist. And it fully doesn't give you Anna's point of view at all. Right. And I think that's a huge disservice to whatever we're going to get from the story. I mean, I definitely think it should be closer to a three-hander, like you're saying, between these three characters to kind of make it interesting to kind of prevent some of those things that I think are, like, gross portraitures of, like, sad women. Um, eh, Right. But, like, it, it focuses more on Emily Blunt and, like, the murder mystery of it. And part of the problem with that, too, is that, like, it's even more so obvious what's going on and who the killer is in the movie than it was in the book. And in the book, it's pretty obvious what's going on. Yeah. Maybe not the gaslighting part of it, but I mean, we should say spoiler alert. It's Tom, the ex-husband who is now the husband of Anna, who is the killer. He'd been having an affair with Megan who had been their nanny. Um, Watching the movie. It's a lot easier to, we're like, oh, you're making Luke Evans seem too much of a brute. It's obviously not him. And yeah. and like anytime you see Megan having sex with what we assume is her husband, you never see his face except for like one scene. Yeah. Um and it's like it's doing this weird peekaboo and it's like the whole time she's talking to her therapist, you think she's talking about her husband, but really she's talking about her slam piece. Were I watching um, this movie had having not read the book? My only two options for who would have been the killer would have been Justin Theroux or Rebecca Ferguson. Because, like I said, it's obviously not Luke Evans. They went too heavy on the brutishness too early. It's obviously not Edgar Ramirez because he's, like, your first suspect. And, I mean, I guess it could be Rachel, like, a more daring uh, 
one would be Rachel, but like if it were Rachel, they wouldn't make you suspect Rachel ever. So right, I was like, it's got to be either Anna or Tom, and it's ultimately Tom. Yeah, and then once and- it is, it's this very sort of perfunctory. You know, he finds out that that it happens in broad daylight is a little bit interesting to me that like you're not fully expecting the whole big climax to happen Mm -hmm. when she just sort of like comes by the house in the middle of the day. But like he catches her and she tries to call the police and he catches her at that. And and, you know, you think he's going to beat her to death or whatever and get rid of her. And she turns the tables on him and puts a corkscrew in his neck. And then. Anna is just like, oh, is Anna going to, like, call the police? Is she going to be a problem for Rachel? And then Anna, like, at the last second, like, twists, literally, like, twists yeah. the corkscrew. And whatever, they get their it's story straight. It's just so, like, obvious the whole time and not really all that developed. Because, like, I wish that this was the type of thing where it's, like, look at how one man can, like wreak so much havoc on women yeah. by being just like a disgusting yeah like dis- reeked with like toxic masculinity and yeah. brutish violence what one man can do but it's just not i don't even know if it's all that interested in that i think like no. when the twist comes it's like oh i guess we're gonna be about this but it's like it it never really to the point where it's like I hate being reductive like this, but like Tate Taylor, who is like we'll talk about, he's not very nuanced as a director. No, but like I do almost wish that this was directed by a woman who could maybe bring out some of those like nuances and themes to make it yeah feel like this is a smarter take on that. Did you read who were the original choices to play the Justin Thoreau and Luke Evans roles? One of them was Jared Leto. Jared Leto was going to play the Luke Evans role. Which Which makes no sense. Makes no sense. Because even on the page, he's this, like, hulking brute of a a man. And then Chris Evans was going to play the Justin Thoreau role, which I'm glad he didn't because I don't want to... We don't want to see Chris Evans do that? Yes! That's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. We want to believe that he is a nice man. Yes. I... Yeah. Kind of. I don't know. So He's like the golden retriever of actors. And then apparently Kate Mara was actors. originally cast for one of the three female roles. The Haley Bennett role seems to be the most Kate Mara because that's basically what she played in American Horror Story. But Right. Well, she could have potentially played Anna she because could have. if if I remember correctly on the in the book, Anna is supposed to be significantly younger than Rachel. Well, right. Anna was the was the um Megan Hipwell before Tom found Megan. Like that was he it's implied that he just sort of Yeah, yeah. yeah will yeah, keep yeah. going through, you know, women finding younger versions. It's also implied that he's impotent, that he actually like can't he couldn't have sex with Rachel for after a while because he was so disgusted by her. And uh you think that it's because or she certainly thinks it's because she was an alcoholic and she was awful and she was terrible but then you find out that he now can't get it up for anna so and anna is like miss pretty perfect mother so it's like oh no it's just that like he gets so like disdainful of these domesticated women that he you know marries and whatever and then he has to move to the next you know essentially babysitter type he's gross he's a gross man you guys He's terrible. Like, it, and it's He's just. Awful. 
So this movie was directed by Tate Taylor, as you said. It was produced by uh, Mark Platt's production company. And now this was 2016, so this was the same year of La La Land. So this was clearly, even by the time it made theaters, it was the... It was its own production company, sort of like second horse in the race. And of course, it's mostly the distributors who run the Oscar campaign. So it's like it's not mm-hmm. like the the divided attention was going to, you know. Unless you're Scott Rudin. Right, exactly. But I also feel like, I mean, Mark Platt's got a lot of money to throw around. And I'm sure there were, right, 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 you know, right, parties right. And, and glad handings and whatnot. And he was, you know. And waving through train windows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think this... This movie was trying to follow, like we said, in the footsteps of Gone Girl. And also, it was trying to capitalize on what at this point would have been a 10-year Oscar buzz evolution for Emily Blunt that I feel like we should talk about. Because is this our first chance having to talk about Emily Blunt? Yes, it is, because we have famously not yet done salmon fishing in the Yemen. Um, (laughs) So Emily Blunt, it all starts with... And it feels like it almost ends with The Devil Wears Prada, where we didn't realize until it was too late, or like voters didn't realize until it was too late to really start making momentum for that performance. Well, okay, so she gets the Golden Globe nomination for that. And I remember feeling very hopeful at that point because the idea of the BAFTA nomination. Right. And The Devil Wears Prada, the whole idea was when it got, because it was a summer movie, right? Yes, it was. So, and I think the idea for much of that year was, oh, this is just going to be Meryl. Like, it's not going to be anybody else. Mm-hmm. This is a Meryl movie. The, mo- the Because the movie itself had gotten mixed reviews. And I think a lot of people didn't quite know how to parse the feminist critique of that movie and whether, you know, we're supposed to admire Miranda or despise her and and the sort of, you know, the fact that there was the real-life author and people didn't quite know how to parse all of this. But at the one thing everybody knew was Meryl Streep gives this amazing performance. She's obviously going to get nominated. And I think when Emily Blunt got the supporting actress nomination at the Globes, people sort of started to realize that, oh, maybe this movie could have more. You know, there's the costumes and there's the whatever. And it's weird to me. I think Anne Hathaway was in a tough situation because there was no way to pitch her as supporting, although I wonder if, like, 10 years down the line, when everybody's gotten much more shameless about category placement, and maybe somebody might have tried it. But she wasn't going to be able to well, move Well, re- my memory of it was, like, at least when, because it was a summer movie and the conversation started for Meryl, there was a little bit, like, potential that she could be supporting. And have, oh, that Meryl could be supporting. Or Meryl could be supporting. yeah. That's true. I think it, I think by the time you had gotten to the fall, though, momentum for Meryl was so right was so high. And then when you and have... also people didn't know how to feel about Anne Hathaway at that point. She was only a year removed from yeah. Brokeback Mountain. Like we hadn't really decided that Anne Hathaway was a you know a lead actress who we wanted to nominate. I think it's the sort of if Bridget Jones for Renee Zellweger had come before. The sort of the years that had gone on between Before Jerry Nurse Maguire, Betty. yeah, or even like Jerry Maguire or stuff like that. If like if I don't, you know what I mean? I think it it we needed those years of Renee Zellweger being like an overdue Oscar nominee for that to happen for her. 
in a romantic comedy. Do you know what I mean? Right. So anyway, my point being that like Emily Blunt became the other option, which also is crazy to me because Stanley Tucci is so good and fully worthy of a supporting actor nomination that year and that he didn't get that sticks in my craw. And you know Well, and there's also this thing about Emily Blunt's uh BAFTA nomination and her Golden Globe nomination. I remember there being just this sense of, oh, well that's just how much they like the movie. Not right. that she's giving this great performance, but like she's benefiting from being in a movie that's well liked. And yet she was reviewed really well for that movie. Like people really loved her in that in that role. And it was a great breakout for her. And like it's not a surprise that all you know, immediately thereafter, she starts getting cast in a bunch of different roles. Jane Austen Book Club, Dan in Real Life, Sunshine Cleaning the young Victoria, like that all sort of like springs from this movie. That's not a surprise. Uh, But what also happens from this movie, so she doesn't get the Oscar nomination and she should have, and that's probably, it's the closest she would come to an Oscar nomination until I would say this year of, of Mm -hmm. girl on the train. Whereas like the girl on the train, she gets the SAG nomination surprisingly. And all of a sudden people are like, wait a second, how close is she to cracking this lineup? And we'll talk about the 2016 best actress lineup in a second, but it was a, doozy of a it was a doozy of a of a race for it was that a weird year man it was so but i think up until then the 10 years in between people sort of looked back at at devil wears prada and were just like huh i guess that was the closest we were going to get to nominating emily blunt even though a she kept giving great performances and b the golden globes freaking loved her so the golden globes nominates her for Devil Wears Prada and then in the same year nominates her for a television performance in the TV movie Gideon's Daughter, which she wins for. She wins the Golden Globe that year. Wins her only Globe. Her only Golden Globe, supporting actress in a TV miniseries series or or motion picture, the way the Golden Globe sort of like TV supporting actress is, is all oh, in one bucket. Yeah. So subsequently, though, she's nominated in 2009 for The Young Victoria in 2011 for salmon fishing in the Yemen, salmon fishing in the Yemen, um, 2014 for into the woods, which, you know, famously, I was just like famously such an asshole. Um, but which like, you could see that one coming months down the pike where it was just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. because best, best actress in a comedy or musical is such like a limited set anyway. And it's just like, yeah, Emily Blunt is the lead in this year's big musical adaptation. Of course, she's going to get nominated. And Jennifer then, Hudson's getting nominated this year. Uh, yes, she is. Uh, although, not unless, not if they push her supporting, though. Or if Judy Dench, yeah. as old Deuteronomy, is yes. considered the lead. Yes. But no, the thing, I mean, like, that was just like, I don't know. And then this year she got her sixth nomination for Mary Poppins Returns. What's interesting to me is that the two times since Prada that she's come closest to Oscar nominations, they were for performances that were not nominated by the Golden Globes. They were for A Quiet Place this year and Girl on the Train in 2016. Mm -hmm. But it's mostly because the Golden Globes love her, with the exception of the young Victoria. They love her in those comedy or musical performances. I feel I felt like this year when she lost the comedy globe to Olivia Coleman, I was like, Oh, Emily Blunt's not getting nominated. 
Well, not for like that. that felt like the end of the line for that movie, and I don't think she was she wasn't nominated with BAFTA either for Mary Poppins. I was like, right. this is toast. But then out of nowhere comes this surge for A Quiet Place, and I think a lot of people were predicting her on Oscar nomination morning to show up in the supporting actress category for A Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. I think it was like just a 50, as like 50 an amalgam thing. thing that like people are just and like so at voting this, for her yeah. right. So at this point. We all figure it's going to happen. Like, we, nobody thinks that, like, Emily Blunt is going to go through her entire career without getting an Oscar nomination. So it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and for what role. And to me, this is more interesting almost than what movie will Amy Adams win an Oscar for. It's like, what will be the movie that pushes Emily Blunt just to get a nomination. Is it going to be one of those things where it's just going to be like disappointing because she really just sort of like has to like, you know, whore herself out for something stupid or is or it going she has to be... to be in a best picture front runner or in a best picture. Fr- but like to get a nomination, it's not like you don't have to do the same stuff to get a nomination that you do to win. Like, I don't know. I feel like she, there's still a chance that she could get nominated for something interesting, but you look at her upcoming movies She's not going to get nominated for Jungle Cruise. Like, I don't care how, like, Pirates of the Caribbean it gets. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. And then it's A Quiet Place too, Right? Which, like, no. Really not super happy. doubt it. Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. Which, that can't be the real title. I'm sorry. For, um, what's the real title? Of, what was the original title for that movie? The End of Tomorrow? And the Edge of Tomorrow? Edge of Tomorrow. Whatever. That was such a good movie. She was so good in that movie. She deserved a nomination for fucking that. boss. She's great in that movie. That was what year? That was, uh... 2014. 2014. I wonder if she that made my... It should have been about her, not Tom Cruise. Like, I mean, the... for me, it was... <laughs> For me, I mean, that movie wasn't yeah. about her. Wait, I want to see if she made my best actress lineup that year because if she didn't, she should have. Her arms. Twenty fourteen. Her and Cynthia Erivo, like best <sighs> arms. Best in arms. Oh my god, best arms of the twenty tens. Let's make that category happen. So, twenty fourteen, best actress. Oh, I had her in supporting actress. I should have had her in lead actress. She was the lead of that movie. Anyway. <laughs> yes, we are retconning history that. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow does not even include Tom Cruise. It's about her. I would like it you to could be. totally do that movie. The whole concept of that movie allows for a version of that movie that is that. Okay, my Make picks for supporting actress sequel. in 2014 would have really improved that category. Not to like pat myself on the back. So Patricia Arquette, Boyhood, Laura Dern, and Wilder would have kept both of them. I would have added Emily Blunt for Edge of Tomorrow, Kristen Stewart for Still Alice, and Marissa Tomei for Love Is Strange. Who doesn't love that? Who doesn't mm. love that lineup? That's a really good lineup. Uh, my supporting actress lineup, which I don't know if I can stand by. This is old and I haven't touched it. <laughs> for 2014, uh, Patricia Arquette for Boyhood. Suzanne Clement in Mommy. Nice. K- Carrie Coon in Gone Girl. Agnetha Kuleza in Ida, a movie I don't like, but I love that performance. And Emma Stone in Birdman. Carrie Coon was my number six. She really almost made it for me. I would probably replace Emma Stone with Marissa Tomei for Love is Strange. Yeah, Marissa Tomei is really good in Love is Strange. Guys, before the new Iris Axe movie comes out this year, go and watch Love is Strange and watch Little Men and really, truly know what it is to anticipate the new Iris Axe movie because it's going to be... The new Iris Axe? 
It's going to be so good and heartbreaking because all of his movies are so good and heartbreaking. And like racket, like any time that like not even the heartbreaking. Idea of this movie it's comes like into my heart, head is like, like Iris Axe like is there's a bittersweet like the king of like ripping your heart out of your chest, stepping on it, kissing it, and then putting it back in its <laughs> yes. Place. Like that yes. is what his movies do. We love him. His new movie coming out this year is called Frankie. At this point of the episode airing, it potentially is going to be in the can lineup. It's you, rumored to be in the can lineup. Every time we mention this movie, Izzy Chris, Huppert. every time anybody says the word Frankie around Chris, Chris says, Iris X movie, it's going to be at can probably. Like, you are so, you are riding very hard for this movie I, to be at can. If it doesn't show I am up there. embracing the power of positive thinking. Yeah. Um, Jesus. Like, uh, I want that for you. Also a good transition because, yes, it stars Isabel Huppert, the stealth player of the 2016 Best Actress race. Yes. So, 2016. It was like a different lineup of actresses, each different category. Or so, everybody. Each precursor, right. which we love, but e- like also ends up racking our brains because this actress lineup, I don't think, was what anybody wanted to see. <laughs> well. But it's not bad. It's, it's not just it's leaving not bad. off Amy Adams. Everybody knew that Emma Stone was going to get nominated for La La Land. Everybody knew that Natalie Portman was going to get nominated for Jackie, although Jackie ends up. That was a rough award season for Jackie because it started. After Jackie played like Tiff, and I think it would it either was Venice or Telluride, right? It was like two of those festivals, whatever it was. I think it was just Tiff, but maybe I'm wrong. It might have been Venice, yeah. It was definitely Tiff because that's where I saw it. But so, but it went into the festival season without a distributor, and Searchlight had the option to buy it. Keep in mind, this is the year of birth of a nation and all of its controversy was going on and right searchlight was already primed to go big on that movie um so jackie comes into award season as a lion and walks out as a lamb basically we're like it was a you know a probable best picture nominee people thought maybe pablo lorraine had a shot at a best director nomination people were talking about is it good enough to bring along a supporting nomination for Peter Sarsgaard or whatever. Certainly, you know, because it was, you know, the screenplay did such interesting things like that was. And then ultimately it gets two, it gets Natalie and it gets Mika Levi. Yes. Uh, no, it got more than that. It at least got costumes. It did yeah. I looked costumes. it up. It's those three. It's those three. Okay. But so I think for a movie as strange as Jackie, like we, I think Granted, it was owned by Searchlight. They didn't have it until last minute. But, like, we, I think a little bit with Jackie, like, it was a lot of wishful thinking. We maybe should have known better. It's a very strange movie. Yes. It's a very alienating movie. Like, those three nominations, like, it definitely deserves more. But, like... It was ambitious. It was very ambitious. For a movie like that, I think getting three nominations is nothing to sniff Right. At. Well, that's what I mean. I think perception is everything. So, all of a sudden, the perception was disappointment and then now people talk about natalie portman and jackie and they're like emma stone is in possession of natalie portman's rightful oscar which is funny to me because i remember how fraught things always were with natalie portman and i wasn't sure if like you know the stands really loved natalie portman and 
And now it's this weird, odd, like little gay Twitter gospel that Natalie Portman deserved to win for Jackie. And she very Natalie well Natalie Portman's it. second Oscar, I will say it now, Natalie Portman's second Oscar is going to be so boring. I know. I know. Um, I know. She can she can resist that by shit. just not making boring movies. Maybe she's she's making real fucking interesting movies. That's the thing, and and in I'm a way, not like negative on Emma Stone's performance. I'm like, I'm not either. I think she's great. I, I don't like I. It's not a nomination I would ever even go for, let alone a win. But it's really just the case of the right person in the right movie at the right time, which is why I also say like Emily Blunt needs to be in a best picture front runner emma stone for la la land is not anything i would have voted for but that's an oscar winning performance it just you know what i mean in a way that like i don't know any like classic actress where you look back and you're just like oh right that you know grace kelly oscar let's say the rest of the nominees right sorry 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 so emma stone and, and and natalie portman were the locks then ruth nega had this odd little like reverse parabola where she was she was a a big like preseason contender where people are just mm-hmm. like watch out for Ruth Nega she's this really I remember she got raves in can I remember before can I knew she was in the new Jeff Nichols movie and Jeff Nichols was very much like a director on the rise at this point cuz what's it uh uh the midnight special hadn't opened and disappointed yet so like Jeff Nichols was, was on the rise. And I remember being like, don't sleep on Ruth Nega, because the only thing that I had seen her in was Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And she was fucking great in that. She played a villain in that. And nobody really knew who she was. I don't think Preacher had premiered yet on TV. No. And so then Can happens, and people, and all of a sudden the Ruth Nega talk really, like, shoots up. And then... She was one who, once the precursor season started, people forgot about her, forgot about her. She got left off of, like, lineups right and left, and people kind of counted her out. And they counted her out because, like, two, like, insurgents, kind of odd odd to call these two insurgents, but, like, Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins, which was just, like, people didn't think it was going to happen because Florence Foster Jenkins looked so basic, but it was Meryl. movie is so bad. Eh, I think it's okay. I think it's perfectly fine. I think it's fine. one of Meryl's worst performances. I think it's a perfectly fine performance in a perfectly fine movie that shouldn't have been nominated for anything. And then the real big one was I couldn't believe how much Isabel Huppert got awards love. Like, I I fully understood why the critics loved her. Critics always love her, first of all. And she's great in Elle. And she was also great that same year in the Mia Hansen Love movie whose title I'm blanking on right now. Things to come. Things to come. Yes. But the fact that she like won the golden globe and the fact that she, should she also win the SAG? No, she did not win. She won like a couple things though. Like she kept on, I remember being just like, she won like a lot of the big critics prizes because she wasn't nominated for BAFTA. She won the independent Um, spirit award. I think that was the other one. I remember I saw her give like two speeches. Anyway, um, and for whatever reason, the, 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 the plot and thematic content of L didn't turn off voters at all. And a, I mean, like, I think L is almost an interesting contrast in the same year in the same best actress race as the girl on the train, because they're both like, they're both thrillers with 
that deal with like sexual tensions and sexual abuse. Here's my hot take theory on L. If L was set in America and played by American actors and actresses, it as would, it was originally supposed to be, it would have been despised. It would have been despised and nobody would have liked it, critics or awards voters, and it would have gotten nothing. I think the European sheen of L really helps it go down quicker, like easier. It also goes down because of Isabelle Huppert, too. Like you had this whole conversation, particularly around that time of that movie of performer as auteur. Like it's not yes. just for Haven's movie. It's also hers and it's also her authorial Which voice. was and smart. Like, that's part of what makes that movie as intelligent as it is. Which was also smart um, marketing, though, because you cannot market the rape revenge movie as the product of your male uh, provocateur director. You have to market it as the, you know, the actress as auteur thing or else you're going to get destroyed. I, I mean, I think if that wasn't such a caustic movie and like, I think it, I think it speaks, her nomination does speak to uh, tastes changing within the Academy because I don't think that that would have happened 10 years ago, even like, with all of the not just for like it's a foreign it's a foreign language performance all of that like i think just the content of that movie like people would have been scared off 10 years ago if brian de palma um, makes his movies in 2016 with isabel Huppert as um what was the one shit what was the one with uh was it angie dickinson uh, uh, dress to kill. Dress to kill. If he makes dress, dress to kill, is highly problematic though. Like, So's L. L is highly problematic. Sure, but dress like, to kill is highly problematic too, and I think it's like it, disgusting in a lot of ways. But if Brian De Palma tries to make a version of Dress to Kill in 2016 with Isabel Huppert, a you would make Isabel Huppert the face of that movie the same way you would make it. Make you would make her the face of L because, you know, Brian De Palma turns that movie you know that movie's but brian de palma is not the same filmmaker as paul verhoeven and verhoeven i think is a little bit like yes he's still a heterosexual male filmmaker but i think he approaches it a little bit more intelligently and less lure i mean it's still a lurid movie but in a way that's not exploitive i think i agree with you but i i i I only think it I don't know. L, I was very... L is such an interesting, like, case. Like, it's also one of those movies that, like, I didn't initially like it as much as I do now because, like, listen, guys, I can be kind of an asshole sometimes where it's like, if you are trying to push my buttons, I will demonstrably have none of my bush- buttons pushed and be like, eh, it's not that provocative. <laughs> like, you know, like... If I feel like a movie is trying to like upset me, uh-huh. I will just performatively not be upset. Um, but no, I think it's really smart, and I think I think Isabelle Huppert does have a certain level of authorship over that movie in a way that I don't. We don't have a ton of actresses that do that. I think maybe Nicole Kidman is uh, an example of that, even though like she's someone who talks about being in like service to whatever her director's vision, but like yeah. Her choices define what her movies are. All right, at the let's same time. let's pull it back to Girl on the Train for a second because we're going pretty yes, long. Yes. Um, I think when you talk about like authorship of Girl on the Train, I don't know if this movie ever 
becomes not like it's all it's Paula Hawkins' story still. Like I don't think yeah. Tate Taylor or screenwriter Aaron Cressida Wilson do enough of a job of making it their own. I don't think like I mean for whatever I don't know what you would call the Tate Taylor directorial like stamp, but I don't think he puts it on this. And I mean, he doesn't have one. His movies are so like wildly different. Like I mean, maybe it's going to start to firm up because he has two upcoming thriller movies, both Ma with um, Octavia Spencer, which like looks incredibly problematic. But like, I'm why definitely why problematic? Wait, why why are we saying problematic? Just I think the like evilness of how it's portraying this middle aged black woman um, hmm. against largely these white kids. Um, huh. I, I have some concerns about it, though I am excited for this movie. But then he also has this thriller starring Jessica Chastain called Eve, which if you look it up on IMDb, like it's just a picture of Jessica Chastain with blood on her face. So like... Oh, that's interesting. Mood, I guess. But I hope she, uh, we get to watch Jessica Chastain like kill some people. I mean, I would hope that in 2019 we're able to have a movie like Ma where Octavia Spencer gets to play a horror movie villain without having to like wring our hands about whether, you know, a black woman oh, is being, do, too. being too much of a villain. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm be, I, that's just like my reductive take on it. But it's also like I hope that that is true, too. But I am not fully confident about the ability for it to just be that when it's coming from the director of the help. Well, sure. He's going to be a lightning rod forever because he's the director of the help. And Octavia Spencer's in an interesting position where she is the sort of, she's the Tate Taylor whisperer, right? Where like, she's the one with the Mm -hmm. personal relationship to him. So she is tied to him on the help in a way that Viola Davis, let's say is not. And then also, um, she, Oh, she produced Green Book is the other thing. So I, I, it's not like we're going to cancel Octavia Spencer, but like, I don't know. There's some, there's some thin ice there. I don't know. I don't know what to say about Octavia Spencer, except that I love her and I super can't wait for Ma. She's going to have to do some real shit for me to not be in the tank for her. Yeah, seriously. So the other thing. So the other thing is screenwriter Aaron Cressida Wilson, who I just want to mention for a second, because she does the adaptation for this. Her screenwriting career is real interesting, both mm. in terms of like the types of stories she's writing, but also just like the kind of scope where she starts off. Her big thing is that her big breakthrough is Secretary, which is the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie that has the sort of S&M themes and it's very... I mean, talk about a movie that nearly made it to an Oscar nomination off of some really non-Oscar-y subject matter. Some envelope-pushing yeah. ideas about sex. Which is very cool. And then she makes, to me, one of the quintessential This Had Oscar Buzz movies, which is Fur, <laughs> An Imaginary Portrait of Dion Arbus, which we'll have to do at some point. Nicole Kidman like got so much Oscar buzz for that movie in a way that, like, it's so funny to think about it now in the aftermath, both because that movie did nothing even on like an indie level. And also it's such a weird story. I can't imagine we ever thought, I mean, I also laugh that we thought she could get nominated for birth, but like it, this is so much weirder than birth. And 
And then, so then after that, she makes she writes Chloe, which is the Neil no Adam McGoyan. Not I keep wanting to say Neil. Jordan. Yeah, it's Adam McGoyan. Neil Jordan was the one who did uh, Chloe 2019 with uh, Isabel Huppert and Chloe Grace. You Moret. mean Greta? I do. It's Chloe 2019. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this was the uh, Amanda Seyfried and Julianne Moore have weird noiry like. Sex. sex with each other and it's you know someone's that's a get fairly sexually explicit movie yeah i mean adam mcgoyan will go there and so but also the like <laughs> the rock bottom of this comes right before girl on the train where she had done the screenplay for men women and children another movie i think we'll probably end up talking about on this podcast because that is a jason it's jason reitman's worst movie which is saying something yeah. because jason reitman made labor day so Truly, we got to talk about Labor Day too. Men, women, and children is a piece of garbage. In like, <laughs> it is it is the wettest blanket with it such is... a good cast to do that to that cast. Jennifer Garner, Emma Thompson, Rosemary DeWitt, Judy Greer, Timothy Chalamet's in that movie. Ansel Elgort's in that movie. Um, it's it is so fundamentally flawed, and it all goes back to the idea that like the things that it's talking about, if they had just realized that like the second that you like start writing about these things, you are already out of date um, with like just discussing how we communicate through technology and those type of things. Like you are never, you are never going to be able to make an interesting movie because it's already like 15 reiterations of this conversation. Here's like, yes. Yeah. Here's why I'm interested in, Aaron Cressida Wilson going forward is she is attached to write the screenplay for the remake of Indecent Proposal, which I am fully ready for. Like I, I'm fully ready for it too. Indecent like, Proposal mean... is a lurid and ludicrous movie from 1993, and if you're too young to remember it, first of all, how dare you? I despise your youth. Second of all, just know that in 1993. Everybody, everybody in culture, like we people talk about the death of the monoculture and the how Game of Thrones is like the last thing that we're all talking about at the same time. But everybody, I hate Game of Thrones. It's fine. Throw it out there. I hate it, Chris. It's so funny to me that you would jump out here and performatively mention how you don't watch Game of Thrones. God damn it! <laughs> I was making a point about how in 1993. Every single person in the culture had an opinion on what you would do if Robert Redford offered you a million dollars to sleep with your spouse. Everybody had to have an opinion on it and had to back it up with facts. We were like we were given essay questions as a culture and we all knew what we would do in that situation. They talked about that shit on the real world. The Real World, which is a show Mm -hmm. that is now about people not quite dying of binge drinking. But back then, they talked about things in the culture. And one of the things they talked about was what they would do in an indecent proposal situation. All I'm saying is, I want to see what we make of this movie now. And it better be fucking lurid as shit. I agree. Like, I am very much on the record of, like, I want us to be dealing with like sexual themes in movies and not be so terrified of them like i think even with like the type of things we're discussing right now that's especially when we should be doing them so that we can have these discussions but can i have my hot take regarding like m- the like indecent proposal thing yes. in like 1993 it's whatever? a bad movie yeah that's when, it is uh no my take is 
that's when we should have had a monoculture. There is an obvious answer here. You do not let your spouse have sex with Robert Redford. You have sex with Robert Redford. If Robert Redford Whoa. in 1993 wanted to have sex with my spouse, I'd be like, no, have sex with me. This galaxy brain just really fully, that's the thats the true Big Bang right there. Is that not the honest answer, though? Like, well, us, wait, like, no, I want to have sex with Robert wait, Redford. Wait, but where, where does the money go in this situation? I mean, your eye, your eye is on that prize. My is, my eye is still squarely on that sack of cash. Okay, so if Robert Redford wants to take a like time capsule from 1993 and come to us as spouses of this podcast, podcast spouses, right? Yes, it's a, it's a legally binding term in yeah, we're in the near spouses. future. Yeah, I will be having sex with Robert Redford, right? But I am, I will be the one rolling around in the bed naked in the in the bed full of bills yes that that would be yes that's how we divide up the labor of our situation money's gross this is how this like whole thing is working out because i'm not rolling around in money but like it was a famous scene from a movie chris i didn't just make it up i know i think this is working out perfectly you get to fuck robert redford in 1993 i get to spend 1993 value of a million dollars which like that's not for nothing also money all right we decided all right call us robert yeah call us bob okay anyway anything else before we finally trudge into the imdb game because we did go long actually there were a couple things let's hold on a second put a pin in that little imdb game because i want to talk about the location managers guild which was one of the nominations what's that i said whoa oh i thought you said like you're you're putting the brakes on it no no No, because we're not going to put the brakes on it. We're going to talk about this because one of so this movie did not get nominated for much beyond the fact that Emily Blunt did get the SAG nomination and the BAFTA nomination. And also, it's so sad that this movie gets to include on its list of awards the Hollywood Film Award for Producer of the Year that Mark Platt got for producing this movie and Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and oh, by the fucking way, La La Land, which I wonder why he won it of those mm-hmm. three movies. Anyway, Mark Platt cleared, paved the way for his son uh, to become a Broadway star, and that's why he has a Tony. Anyway, anyway, the most interesting nomination that it got of all of them was a nomination from the Location Managers Guild, which in 2017 nominated it for, interestingly enough, did not get the nomination for Outstanding Locations in Contemporary Film, which is what I thought it got. It got a nomination for being a product of the Outstanding Film Commission. Essentially, it was the movie that was nominated for the New York State Governor's Office on Motion Picture Development. So essentially, it was the movie that got filmed in New York State that year that they like put up. To get nominated for the New York State uh, Office of Motion Picture Development. It got beat by the Royal Film Commission of Jordan, which won for Rogue One. So take that, Andrew Cuomo. Fucking Star Wars taking all of our awards. Taking all of our awards. But uh, So this, this awards body gives awards for outstanding locations in both contemporary film and period film. They also award television. But so that same year, La La Land won for Outstanding Locations in Contemporary Film, which I think is kind of funny. Good win. You can stand by that. Yeah, except they filmed on the fucking freeway. Like, how hard was it to find the freeway in Los Angeles? There's a lot of Los Angeles in that movie. Okay. All right. All right. I'm just saying. 
other nominees I guess I'm that year. Noted La La Land defender here. I like I like La La Land too. Hidden yeah, Figures like won for period, which like okay. Other nominees that year: Hacksaw Ridge, Hail Caesar. Oh God, Live by Night. So when we talk about Live by Night mm-hmm. on this podcast, we'll have to remember that this got a Location Managers uh, Guild nomination for Live by Night, and then again, Rogue Star Wars Story. Uh, this past. They don't have this current past year, but so the most recent ones they have listed on IMDb. I want to mention that Baby Driver won for Outstanding Locations in Contemporary Film over, I would say, the more deserving The Florida Project, which found that fantastic goddamn apartment building. Be still, my heart. And all those little locations in that in in Orlando, like that's the winner to me. And also Lady Bird, which found that house in sacramento first of all and then a whole bunch of other bridge and speaking of the outstanding film commission award which is what girl on the train was nominated for for new york state um that year atlanta which is like (laughs) location uh behemoth atlanta atlanta is the uh is the game of thrones of location offices essentially where it's just like you're not going to beat it if you're up against it but visit sacramento was one of the nominees that year and honestly who had a better 2016 than goddamn sacramento between like you know anyway just saying i'm just saying you know justice for girl on the trains tunnel I guess. I mean, it's a train. It's a cool tunnel. It's no, a train. the tunnel, the tunnel where like he kills her and. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what though? If you go to upstate New cool York, tunnel. there's a lot of those. Like, throw a dart in upstate New York. You'll find it. We're going to pivot, go to the Hudson Valley. To a shit on the state of New York. Go to the Hudson Valley. You'll find it. You'll find one of those. It's fine. Did you want to talk about anything else? Did you want to talk about the the Yoga Awards or anything like that? Now, Emily Blunt also got a yoga award, which we famously talked about is uh, like the Spanish Razzies. Razzies, yeah, um, which I think is unfair. Yeah, she's um, good in that movie. But their actress picks also suck. Like, remember they gave it to Jennifer Lawrence for Mother, which like is, yeah, like one of her best performances. I don't Shut hate I don't hate it. the yogas more than the Razzies, but I hate I I don't like the yogas. I I feel like they are just as I feel like they are just as shitty in their picks. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I guess my final words on Girl on the Train is once again, it was sold to us as like an answer to Gone Girl, but really it's I think it's deserving place is more like a thriller version of Fifty Shades of Grey. I yeah. think that sets you up more for what you should be expecting and like how the level to which you might want to be checking out yeah. while you're watching or reading this. Um, Dakota Johnson would have been good as Megan Hipwell. Dakota Johnson would be good as a lot of things. I like Dakota Johnson. And Luke Evans would have been good as What's-His-Nuts in Fifty Shades. I suppose that's fair. I do not like Luke Evans. I don't either. I try. Listen, bisexual heroes are hard to come by, so I want to like Luke Evans. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Let's play the IMDb Before game. we get into IMDb game, Oh, though, yeah. Talk about some stuff. We uh, we have something fun to announce. Exciting. We are doing our very first mini-series, which we've like somewhat teased on our Twitter page. Yeah. But it's going to be starting our very next episode. We are going to be doing, in the month of May, we are doing a mini-series on the year 2003. Yes. The whole Joe, year. I think you have... The film year. We've... 
we've tossed around ideas for miniseries before and right. like doing one just to test it out to see how well we think it works with our format. But I think you have a really good hold on why we settled for 2003. Yeah, I mean, settled is a bad word because really we, you know, it's not like... We still have a lot of ideas coming. Well, and also it's just like, it's not like this was, you know, I don't know. Settled feels a little bit just like, ah, it was good enough. No, we're really excited about doing 2003. We talked about doing maybe a miniseries on a person. We still might. I think we've bandied around the idea of doing a miniseries on somebody like Naomi Watts, who's had a lot of projects that were Oscar buzzed and did not uh, did not pan out. Um, 2003 is interesting, though. It was the subject of our first, our very first episode. We talked about Mona Lisa Smile, and we talked about how that was an interesting year for Oscar buzz because it was one of those years where all of the big on paper buzzy movies flopped or at least disappointed that was of course the year that everybody thought cold mountain was going to win everything and cold mountain ultimately is not a this had oscar buzz movie because it still had a bunch of nominations renee zellweger wins her oscar for it jude law is nominated for it yada yada and yet snubbed in best picture and director and best actress so it became sort of emblematic of a year where the big guns all sort of fizzled and Talking about that movie in a miniseries, we can get into your cold mountains, your houses of sand and fog without dedicating a whole episode to it. And instead, we'll dedicate our episodes to the real stinkers, the ones that really, really bottomed out that year. And as a result, you ended up with a really kind of interesting mix of movies that did get nominated for Oscar. But I think the the ones that fell by the wayside to me, where you have the big, some really big, you know, filmmakers and talent, who were either former winners or would go on to be winners. You've got your, you know, we've, we're going to be talking about Kate Blanchett and Gwyneth Paltrow and Ron Howard. Who else do we got? What are what are what are the other talented people we're going to be talking about in this miniseries, Chris? Uh, well, also, well, you mentioned Nicole Kidman. We will have that to discuss. Um... Uh, well, I guess the big thing that we should say is we're actually going to give listeners a chance to yes. tell us what to discuss because we will be doing four movies, one of which readers will get to choose on our usual Twitter poll. Yes. So please follow us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. We will eventually we will be posting this week as you're listening to this, the first week of May, we will be posting the poll to let listener our listeners choose what the fourth movie in our series. So we're going to be doing this series for four weeks. First three weeks will be movies from 2003 of our choosing. The first one, fourth one will be a movie of your choosing. So and we've limited it down to four options, which you will yes. be able to see yeah, on our Twitter we've, page. We've vetted it. We're not crazy. We're not yes. going to give you guys, <laughs> we're not going to give, you know, the teenager full control of the family van or anything like this. So we're just going to, you know. But we hope you guys have fun with it. Feel yeah. free to jockey for votes with your followers, all of that. But, um, yeah, we wanted to give you guys a little opportunity to um, voice what you wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, we're not going to be pivoting think... to to miniseries full time either. This is sort of a fun little lark we're going to do for a while. See how you guys like it. See how we like it. See how you know we feel doing it. And then we're going to go back into one offs. And it's just another you know another way of us doing this podcast. Another way of us talking about Oscar buzz in a way that we we feel like we can maybe like get a little bit of a story out in this one. And yeah, see how we do. And the reader's choice options that we have for you guys too are all all provide room for very different topics of conversation. Yeah. So yeah. 
it kind of allows you to pick like what you like to hear us talk about. So again, follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Uh, Chris, I will say, does 99% of all of the tweeting <laughs> from that account, and you, you're, you'll you enjoy following it along. He has some really good uh, polls. We have some good conversation out there. So, In May, I will try to have lots of real interesting uh, 2003 content to put out there. Yeah. I went and I found some interesting research materials, which we'll tell, we'll tell you about once we start the podcasts, but... Um, yeah, I went, I went out and I tracked down some stuff, so it's good. So that starts next week. Our 2003 miniseries starts next week. Before we sign off, Chris, tell our friends and listeners about the IMDb game. Okay, so the IMDb game, we end all of our episodes with that, where we challenge each other to name the top four titles that IMDb and its mysterious algorithm says are the four titles that an actor or actress is most known for. We will... Uh, provide some hints saying if there is voice work or television among the top four and we uh caveats we try to avoid harry potter marvel cinematic universe those float to the top and that makes this game pretty boring um Mm -hmm. we throw out our guesses you get two wrong guesses before we give each other years if that doesn't get you the answers then it's just kind of uh, free for all of hints indeed so joseph yes would you like to guess first or would you like to give first i'll give first that sounds Okey fun. Dokey. So we talked this week about The Girl on the Train, which was very much indebted to Gone Girl in its in several ways, I feel like, both the book and the movie. And I feel like if we're going to talk about the trilogy of similarly themed movies about unreliable narrators and women not minding their own business, The Woman in the Window comes out in October of this year. Starring Amy Adams and Julianne Moore, directed by Joe Wright, unfortunately, based on the novel by uh, that that uh, that guy, that liar. I can't remember his name now. AJ Finn is the uh, is the pen name, but you know the guy. He uh, yeah, the guy. The guy. He made up some stuff. I don't know. The motherfucking guy. You know, whatever. Um, but also co co screenwriting credit on this movie, as IMDb is telling it to me goes to one Tracy Letts, who is, of course, <gasps> famed playwright, but also, especially lately, has been one of our more interesting character actors, I will say. He's a very, very fun, occasionally warm, but also occasionally uh, brittle, frosty, I don't know, uh, patrician screen presences. He's really good. And I am going to give you... Tracy Letts with the oh, note that my movie dad, my writer dad. Three of these Love are him. acting credits. One of them is a writing credit. Oh, okay. Well, the writing credits August Osage count. Correct. Um, with that wonderful poster of everybody dogpiling on Meryl Streep. Which say what you will about the adaptation of August Osage County. That poster. I should buy that poster. It's a good make poster. Christmas cards. Just throw Christmas hats on all of those women <laughs> and just make that your fucking Christmas card. I love it. I genuinely love it. The fact that everybody, like the only like glamour shot in all of it is kind of Juliette Lewis. Everybody yes. else is like partially obscured. Like you can barely see Julianne Nicholson's face. Julia Roberts looks insane. Meryl Streep is like 
sort of pose where you can see most of her face, but she's like on the ground getting like tackled by her entire family. I love that poster. People didn't talk enough about what a good poster that was. Um, okay, so August Osage County. The rest are acting roles, so I'm gonna guess Lady Bird is in there. He's so fucking good oh in my Lady God. Bird. I love him. One more scene, and he could have had a nomination. I think just one more. Not scene. nominating either him or Lucas Hedges. Like Chalamet also already had, you know. But like in a perfect world, in in isolation, all three of those men were good enough for supporting actor nominations out of Lady Bird. It's my favorite Chalamet performance. I don't love him the way people love him, but I love him. You don't love him enough, it's true, but the way he says La Fonce Dune. I, I like your band uh, with Jonah Ruiz, Len Fance New. La Fonce <laughs> Makes me laugh every single time because it's so perfectly delivered. Because he's playing himself. Uh, it's so perfect. It's so good. It's so perfect. Um, I need to watch Lady Bird again. Like, it's a two-year-old movie, and like lately I've been like, I fucking need to watch Lady Bird. Um, when she goes, I wasn't flirting, and he goes, kind of wish you were it's so i don't know it's so good i love him um okay uh the other two tracy let's performances um this was on logan lerman so i'm just gonna guess indignation no although it should be because he's he's amazing he should have had a nomination for indignation he's He's definitely on my ballot um so that's one strike the post yes he's great in that (laughs) He's, okay. This is just going to be me being a broken record about Tracy Letts. He's great in the post. He's I, I love that movie, and he and Meryl are su- make such a good tandem in that movie when they have scenes together. My theory about Tracy and his name Letts is Fritz. Is his like... character's name is Fritz in that movie. It's great. <laughs> My theory about Tracy Letts is that like when his first acting Oscar comes, it's going to be just a complete cakewalk. Yeah. Who knows what the performance will be, but like I think he's just going to walk away with it because he's going to be one of those people that it's like... I think August Osage County, as him as a playwright, kind of is like still casting its shadow. But when people realize that he's actually an incredible actor... Yeah. Um, or will it be the, uh, the Mark Rylance thing where no the film people don't know what they have on their hands mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's just like wait a second mark rylance just beat sylvester stallone and it's just like yeah people fucking love that guy yeah watch yeah, it yeah, watch yeah. a tony awards you clod he's in the james mangold car movie that i'm ford not versus excited Ferrari. About, yeah but like that could really be a thing this year playing henry ford the second so his name oh is that who he's playing maybe his cakewalk is this year maybe who um, knows Ooh, he'd be a fun one to put on just, like, year-ahead supporting actor predictions and, like, see what happens. Never mind. Um, okay, I got to come up with a fourth title for Tracy Letts. He also might I be in that him. movie for two seconds. Who knows? But, like. Exactly. Like, on his um, deathbed in the opening scene. <laughs> it'll still win an Oscar. Because who's the uh, younger Ford? The younger Ford is, uh, or no, is that it? That the movie is about the drivers for Ford and Ferrari? thought so okay anyway um anyway anyway uh, sorry i'm distracting you i don't know what i there's not tv right because he's done nope not tv tv stuff okay um i want it to be the lovers which is great he was also on my best actor ballot for that um uh, i don't think it's gonna be that people don't know about that movie um so i'm just gonna throw it out to get a year and i'm gonna say the big short it is the big short 
ugh, nobody should have their known for be the big short. I hate that movie. This past year, when everybody was despising Vice, I was like, guys, did you not see the big short? Everybody loved the big short, and it's the same. Uh, Vice is a little more pernicious, but the big short is dreadful. Uh, dreadful. On the list of things that should be on his known for instead of the big short, I would put I would put the lovers. I would put Christine because he's great Good movie. as the boss and Christine. I would put Homeland where he's like a congressman in charge of some sort of like interrogational subcommittee. And he gives Claire Danes' character so much shit. Claire Danes, by the way, we had to mention her because the law is that we mention Claire Danes in every single one of our podcasts. Um, he's so good on Homeland. And also, if you're going to give him writing credits... There's a bug and also, yeah, I don't know, Superior Donuts. I don't know. I don't like Killer Joe. But otherwise, <laughs> like, Bug's fucking fantastic. One last note on Tracy Letts. Like, I, I, the thing of, like, Hollywood love that makes you, Hollywood romance that makes you believe in love. Like, I think for everyone, everyone would lose faith that love exists if Tom and Rita ever break up. Yeah. But if Tracy Letts and Carrie Coon ever break up, I will be devastated. I, like, love doesn't exist if they can't thrive. I saw them in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The, now that they've announced yet another revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I can say that uh, I saw uh, him. And he, as as George and Carrie Coon as Honey in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And it was very good. Uh, Laurie Metcalf as uh, Martha. We want it. We do not want Eddie <laughs> Izzard as George. What the hell? She's gonna, Absolutely she's not. She's going to eat him alive. All right, what do you have for me? These listeners, right, so, these listeners want to go home. I don't know. I don't know what to tell yeah, you. Yeah, you want to go home. You want us to listen, us, listen to us talk about uh, me dancing around, not thirsting for <laughs> Tracy Letts because he's also. Oh like, wow, it's going um, there. We we've, we've gone it's there. Going there. Whatever. Well. Who cares? Um, so I was also thinking about other girls on trains. I did not come up with a great option, but I did come up with one in a bad movie. I'm thinking of the murder on the Orient Express. Someone we have. Have not done before is Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh wow, we've talked about her Michelle a lot. Michelle Pfeiffer, famous woman on a train. Very much so. See, Michelle Pfeiffer, it's interesting because it's like what you know, it's you have to make a philosophical choice of where to go in her career. Hmm. I'm interested to see what your answers are for this. Batman returns. No. Okay, then I'm fully flipped out. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Shit. Now I'm so up a creek. Dangerous Minds. No. You have Mother- two wrong guesses. You are getting the years. This is going to help you, though. The mid-90s, my affinity for the mid-90s has once again led me astray. There is only one 90s movie um, listed for Michelle Pfeiffer, and that is 1996. The other years are 2007, 2000, and 1988. 2000 has got to be What Lies Beneath. It is What Lies Beneath. Great movie, great performance. So 1988 gives me a coin flip because 1988 is both Married to the Mob and Dangerous Liaisons. She was nominated for Dangerous Liaisons. But I'm going to say Married to the Mob. No. Dangerous Liaisons? It is Dangerous Liaisons. Her only Oscar nomination on her top four. All right, 2007 is, is it Stardust? It is not Stardust. Okay, what else would she have been in in 07? A movie you have famously defended. 
Uh, not the scented, <laughs> but like you have stood for the honor of this movie that does not get enough of it. 2007, Pfeiffer. And what's the other year? Or is this the last one? This is the last one. This is the last one. I can't, I can't tread water anymore. Okay. So <laughs> 2007 was the year of Stardust, I mean, like, though, right? Some, yes, it was the year of Stardust. Some people, I mean, like, I would even say that I have to sometimes be reminded that she's in this movie because it is a large ensemble. She is not the story of this movie. Oh, it's Hairspray. It is Hairspray. That's interesting. She, I will say, Legend of Miss Baltimore Crabs shows up on my Broadway playlist a lot. It'll mm-hmm. just crop up there, and I will listen to it, and I will say, you know what? Michelle Pfeiffer did a damn good job on that number. She's fun. We like Michelle Pfeiffer. Go see Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Wait, Follow her on Instagram. Wait, no. Did I get the 1996 one? Oh, no, you didn't. Sorry, 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 so sorry. Is that 1,000 Acres, though? It is not 1,000 Acres. Okay, 1996. I didn't think I'd got all of them. Um... Is A Thousand Acres 1996? A Thousand Acres is. Hold, please. I think it is. You got it. No, it's 97. It is? That's funny. Okay. So 97 is A Thousand Acres. 95 is Dangerous Minds. And in the middle, she made One Fine Day. One Fine Day. Sure. Which is, you know what? Honestly, should be a better movie. Um, I haven't seen it in a while. I loved it it's as a kid. It's not bad. It's not bad. It should be better. It's the one that I don't really understand why it's there. Because, like, oh, it was What Lies popular. Beneath and Hairspray both made a ton of money. Dangerous Liaisons has her Oscar nomination. Plus, like, I'm sure the algorithm helps that Glenn Close, Close is being searched all the time. So I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's... I don't know. I thought One Fine Day did pretty okay. It was very mainstream. I remember it being, like, a very heavily It was a Christmas movie. movie. Was it what really? I will it came out at Christmas, yeah. What I will say about One Fine Day is like I would not be shocked if this is the movie that cuz we get listeners that's like just so you know the their top 4 is now this like tweeting at us and I would not be shocked if that happens to One Fine Day by the time this episode airs. You think so? Oh, Interesting. Yeah. You know what should be there aside from some of her other great performances like Fabulous Baker Boys, Mother should be there. That's true. One Fine Day only Academy Award nomination was for best original song for I want to say it was sung by Kenny Loggins, but I'm not entirely positive because the listing is only for uh screenwriters or the songwriters. Alas. It's a dumb thing that IMDb does. Yep. All right. Take it home. Oh, wait, but it'll have it listed in the soundtrack. Hold on a second. Sorry, I don't want to leave our wonderful listeners hanging, not knowing whether it was performed by Kenny Loggins. So One Fine Day on the One Fine Day soundtrack was covered by Natalie Merchant. Of course, everybody knows that. God, I love Natalie Merchant. Everybody knows that. Um, We also get the original version of it by the Chiffons. But the song, for the first time, Written by James Newton Howard, Alan Rich, and Judd Friedman, all of whom were Academy Award nominated for writing it, was indeed performed by Mr. Kenny Loggins. So there you go. Great. We'll just pretend that it was uh, sung by Natalie Merchant. Ugh, if Natalie truly. Merchant ha- had a song about a train, she would be sitting there wondering, have I been wrong? Have I been right? Oh, my God. Have I been hypnotized, mesmerized, <sighs> paralyzed? 
by what my eyes have seen. Oh my god! While looking that, out this train window. That train passing by that carnival. <laughs> and that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, please check out our Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Once again, we will be tweeting out this week um, our coming titles for 2003 and then the um, poll where you can pick the episode that we will be doing on your choosing. Joe, tell our listeners where they can find you and your wonderful things. Well, whether you have been blind or you have been lost, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed is also spelled R-E-I-D there. And I am also on Twitter at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. I'm also on Letterboxd under the same name. I keep a running list that I will update soon about um, for This Had Oscar Buzz with all of our titles, IMDb game stats, and direct links to episodes. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility, so please go give us a five-star review or we will throw this plate of deviled eggs at you um, <laughs> kindly um, but that's all for this week we hope you come back next week for more buzz bye Have I been right?